Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. So I was having a moment outside looking at the wall and you've kind of got the history of this label from the 60s up to the present, the here and the now. And I don't know whether it's me, but it's like the older I get, the more I go further back. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, I find like I listen to new music less and less and less now. I think that's Are you tr- a, of a similar disposition? Same with me, yeah. I think you go back and like, oh man, I missed that this whole time. Uh-huh. And I think when you're younger, you're kind of listening to more what's more current you know, and then as you get older, like, oh man, like Tom Petty is pretty good. And how many you know? good albums does yeah, he yeah. have <laughs> down and the rabbit hole? And that's where you stay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that kind of happened for us. Like after Clarity, I think we started um, kind of going back a little bit more than what, you know, when we were first starting, it was all about like, we'd listen to Fugazi and, you know, the bands that we liked in that era, you know, kind of more punk type bands and kind of you can almost even hear it in going into bleed americans like we started listening to like oh this bruce springsteen guy is pretty good and this tom petty guy is pretty good like and kind of opening ourselves up to sort of more like american rock yeah yeah i think because when you start out you want to be well whether or not you want to be but you are because you don't have the tools you're writing stuff that's quite raw and primitive and for lack of a better word, simplistic, perhaps, because you're still, you know, developing your chops. Sure. As songwriters and players. 
I think a lot of times you're just sort of copying what you're into, yeah. you know, and figuring out a way to like, okay, well, you know, um, you know, we, when we first started, we loved bands like no effects and, uh, propaganda and kind of faster pop punk bands, you know, and if you listen to our first material, that's what it sounds like, you know? And I think it's, it's not until a little bit later when you start to, you know, you do start to develop like, Oh, the creative muscles, um, to, to kind of find your own voice, you know, or to kind of find the things that you settle into a way of being a band that's kind of truly yourself. You know, yeah, yeah. early on you're, you're kind of like, you're kind of walking through the dark looking for something. And then, you know, and I think right around for us, like clarity is probably when we really started settling into like, okay, you know, this is sort of, you know, and then that does not to say that we weren't influenced and are still influenced by, by music, but you start to kind of become a little bit more responsible and like, okay, well, we want to be ourselves. We don't want to be copying other people like, you know, but, and I think clarity is right when we started feeling comfortable with that. Is that first album available anywhere? I don't know. I don't it's, think it's so. It's not on the streaming sites or anything like that. Yeah, is it's it? not on the streaming sites. Um, can you buy it? Is it? I don't think you can buy it. It's out of print. Was that a conscious move? Were you guys like, let's remove that from circulation? No. Are you, are you proud uh, of the material that's on that first album? Does it? Stand I, I think it's a good first album. <laughs> yeah. You know? I think it's good for the time. You know, I think that was like, uh, I thought we did a really good job for how little we knew, how little experience we had. You know, I thought it turned out really, really good, but I've never heard it. I'd love to. It's got to find a way. Yeah, I mean, there's. I think there's some still some like songs on there that, like, we could still play today, and it would be like, oh yeah, you know. When was the last time you played a song off that record live? You remember? Probably about like five or six years ago. Okay. There's a song called Patches on it, and we played that at some sort of secret show in Phoenix, and it was like, you know, and then we never played it again after that. But uh. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the only place to really find it is maybe like on eBay or something. Right, right, right. Yeah. I think, because uh, I mean, the material on there must have been strong because it was off the back of that that Capital kind of started sniffing around, right? Is that how it happened? They heard that record and were like, we're going to sign these guys? I think they heard that. They heard, um, we at that time, we'd also had a 7-inch out. Um, and... You know, I don't know if it's if people would listen to it and be like, "Oh, this is great," um, <laughs> but I don't know. It's 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 really not something we're doing deliberately. It's just like I think as a band, we're wired to be future oriented, so we're not really worried about making sure our first album was up on streaming sites yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. we're just kind of like, I mean, <laughs> like I wouldn't be opposed to it, but I mean, we don't have time to deal with it right now. You know, we're, we're like too busy continuing to make records. You know? Yeah. Well, as we were saying just before we started, like one every three years, it's a very constant, consistent, yeah. prolific output from you guys. Mm-hmm. Um, how was it going back and revisiting 10 years of clarity and doing those, those shows and kind of reassessing that material? you know, knowing now what you know and having been through what you've been through. And I think it was really interesting with clarity when we went back and did that tour, because when we were touring during the actual clarity album cycle or during that time, 
um, you know, that was right about the time when we were just starting to have a little bit of an audience, you know, like we, we could go to a city and there'd be like maybe a hundred or 200 kids there, wow. you know, and that was like, that was just starting to happen. Um, but for a majority of that, like there wasn't a lot of people coming out to shows, you know? So I think it was interesting playing that material in like big packed theaters, um, and, uh, kind of seeing firsthand like, Oh wow, this, this album kind of like meant a lot to people to come back and revisit it. Even though at the time when we were touring, like there wasn't, you know, the crowds weren't very big, you know? Um, I guess it's one of those albums that amassed like a cult following in the years that followed rather than at the time it was sure. this big successful breakthrough album, right? It more found its audience perhaps after bleed American and for sure people going know? back and discovering it that way. Yeah. It's definitely I, a fond favorite of so many people, though. It's one of those albums that I think, you know, is very revered as a 90s kind of yeah, indie you know, punk record. It, it, it's kind of wiggled its way into that, I guess, that, 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 that way of looking at it. Um, you know, and I mean, I'm, I, mean I, I think in any, in, in any de- to any degree that our, like, any of our music is appreciated, we're... We're stoked on that. I love it. Uh, how much of um, an impact did the producer Mark from Drive Like Jehu have on those first few records? Oh, massive. Massive Is he a big impact. part of it? Yeah, huge. I mean, he's, you know, when we made those records with him, he was in, like, kind of functioned as, like, a fifth member. I mean, he, uh, you know, he works so hard on his projects. You know, he kind of gets obsessive about them and, uh, and just really... Um, you know, it was an awesome person to learn from. And he, he had a huge impact on everything from static all the way through to Bleed American. How much of a big leap did you want to take going into the studio with Bleed American? You mentioned earlier on that was when you were like more accepting perhaps and aware of kind of the more classic artists and mm-hmm. wanting to aim for a bigger, more ambitious sound. Were you kind of going into the studio with that intention? Like it's time now to expand and, and grow this band and shoot for the stars as it were it was an interesting time because like theoretically we went into that album we recorded it ourselves we didn't have a label we didn't have any management um capital dropped us and then right after capital dropped us we fired our manager and then we were kind of just on our own and the only kind of person we had to partner with to do anything was mark and um he wavered his fee as well, right? Yeah, so he, he so said, listen, don't out. worry about paying me. We'll figure that out later. Let's make a record, you know? And so it was a combination of that kind of, you know, literally writing checks from our bank account to pay for studio time. Are you, still, are you all working jobs at this point Yeah, as well? so we're all... So at that point in time, we all worked jobs, and whatever money we made on tour, we would just save right just pump back into the band yeah exactly so um so like if you can think about a lot of what was happening around a band in terms of what they're doing has to do with like we you know when you don't have a label and you don't have a manager there's a certain kind of like ceiling that it seems a little lower like okay um well we'll make this album and we'll make as good as we can but we don't really know what the future holds. We don't know what's going to happen. Um, is that is that liberating or terrifying or a bit of both? I think for us, it felt liberating. Right. I think for us, when we got dropped from Capital, 
we viewed it as an opportunity. You know, we viewed it as like, we're going to, this isn't going to stop us. We're just going to keep going and we'll figure it out, you know? Um, but I think that with, in terms of creatively with Bleed American, I don't think we really had the sense of expanding. I think in a lot of ways we simplified. Like if you look at like the song structure from Clarity to Bleed American, Bleed American starts to adopt a little bit more of like a simple conventional song structure. Um, and, uh, I think that's kind of when we started identifying like sometimes what makes a song interesting isn't like that it has a million parts to it yeah, yeah and it yeah. gets really loud and really quiet and really loud and it's like getting away from that we said okay well what are the more kind of like subtle things that you can do you know to make it more to, to simplify what you're doing but make it more compelling you know put more of the onus on melody you know, the, the, the basic components of a song, melody, chord progression. Um, so I think Bleed American, we were kind of thinking about that a little bit more and drawing on sort of the classic American songwriters like, you know, Tom Petty, Bruce Springsteen, um, you know, J John Cougar Mellencamp, kind of, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. kind of like that direct, you know, and those, those songwriters can write these really heavy, like, songs, but they're very simple. You know, and it's like, I mean. And it, highly emotive. Yeah, yeah, it's like, it's like, imagine, you know, and, and a lot of it is how you, not only how you, you know, how you write the song, but how you execute it, like how you record it matters, you know. So you're, I think you're, you're putting more pressure on a fewer amount of elements to deliver what you're looking for, that impact. And I think with Bleed American, that's kind of, you know for the most part, I think where our headspace was. So for us, it was like a simplification of what we did on clarity. Clarity was like kitchen sink. Like let's do, mm -hmm. let's just like, you know, go all out. And, um, bleed American was, you know, I think also by necessity, we didn't have the budget that we had for clarity. So like bleed American was like simplicity, bare bones, you know, like, uh, do more with less. And so, um, but as we started making that album, we started getting all this interest from other major labels. So we like, like in the middle of making it, we're like, Oh, okay, well we're getting interest and people are hearing rough mixes of this stuff and wanting to sign. That's us. what it was, was it? it was the rough mixes were going out. And yeah. And the, we, we would literally have like A&R people showing up at our like unannounced, like at our studio, like wanting to hear things. Trying to be the first people to get you. Yeah. yeah. And it was really weird because we went from like being completely, no one really interested, you know, and even the label that we were on was totally uninterested to people having interest. And it was, it was kind of like in the middle of making it. And so I think, you know, we kind of felt like there was a little bit of momentum. Uh, in, and it, there's some momentum and interest in the band from like a label side and a manager side that we didn't have before. How did that album itself change you know, your life individually and then the trajectory of the band. I mean, it totally, it, I mean, like we wouldn't be here if that album didn't have the success it had, you know, we'd probably be selling insurance or whatever, <laughs> like whatever the fuck we were going to be doing. Um, so yeah, I mean, massive, massive change. Was it an overnight thing? Was the kind of the, the impact of, say, a song like The Middle or Sweetness, was that like, were they instant hits? Or were they sort of slow, gradual burners, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, we've sold X many records? 
Um, it was it was sort of an overnight thing when we signed our deal. So before the album even came out, like my wife and I were totally broke. She was pregnant, um, and we spent all of our money making the record. I'd been working side jobs. And it was like when we signed with DreamWorks and we got like our first advance from DreamWorks, it was like I went from like having zero money in the bank to like, holy shit, like I have money and I have like actually like, you know, like a little bit of money in the bank that I don't have to worry. And it was like just that feeling alone was like, oh, I'm, I'm actually making like a like a living that can support like my family and I don't have to work a job like that was the kind of moment where it shifted for me, you know, just personally. I think, you know, so many bands either break up or people leave the band because, as you say, kind of like responsibility and adulthood settles in. And unless you're making the money to support a family, you know, it's kind of like, well, this is too tough. I can't carry on doing this. Yeah. I mean, a lot of bands that we were friends of ours that are still friends of ours that, you know, just the reality of life kind of comes along and okay, well, I can't, I can't go on tour in a van mm-hmm. and then like, you know, so, and yeah. And bands much greater than ours, you know, like that worked harder than we did. And, you know, we just, I think kind of got lucky, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely the reality of, 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 of it is that, you know, you want to kind of progress in life. You want to, you know, you've, you've, you have a, a partner or a wife or a husband and then you, move forward you ever have if you have kids or you just you, you know sometimes it's like the 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 touring in a van is tough yeah and no doubt and when you, there's only a certain amount of that i think that like at some point you're like okay that that was fun i had a lot of fun doing that i'm never going to do that again and i just want to like be home you know and like have a just sort of normalcy because it's a little bit fucked up like the whole idea of it you know, if you can't, if you do that for decade after decade after decade, it's not sustainable. Well, I guess you guys were also lucky in the sense that you caught the tail end of like the music industry when sure. records still sold as well. So I guess off the success of that, are you then able to build a career that has longevity on your own terms as much as one can within this Absolutely. crazy industry? Yep. I mean, definitely. I think that that's true. Like, you know, when we signed with, you know, when we signed with DreamWorks for the Bleed American album, um, I mean, this is before the middle had any success or any, like, so they're signing us based on um, the potential they see in the songs. And that's just not happening anymore. People aren't signing bands because, oh man, I hear something special in these songs. Like, the only time bands are getting signed is if bands are already going out there and creating their own audience. Yeah. And sort of, showing labels like well here's all the streams we're getting you know and then here's the instagram followers we have etc yeah sure so it's a different kind of thing so yeah i mean i think and we were also extremely lucky to to choose dreamworks because they were one of the last labels that was really truly into like artist development like they they wanted to make investments in artists that they believed in even though like i mean everything up until that point, like our career at Capitol, where we put out two albums, didn't have any commercial success, probably ended up costing the label more money than they made. I mean, our track record was bad, right? So you even have like, okay, this is a bad investment. Yeah. But they saw something in the songs. 
you know, and they, um, you know, and they were probably motivated by the fact that like there was kind of a little bit of a bidding war between different major labels to sign us to like that sort of like, oh, we want to get that band, you know. But um, we were really lucky to end up choosing DreamWorks because they were kind of the last old school label that operated in a way of we believe in these artists, we're going to invest in them. And because we have an instinct about their music and about what they're doing. And that just doesn't happen anymore. How many albums did you do with DreamWorks? One. So it was just that one? Because after Bleed American, we, were, we started making features. And like at the beginning of making features, DreamWorks got sold to Universal. Right. So we ended up on Interscope. And Interscope was one of the only major labels that didn't really want to sign us uh, during the bidding war. Right. So we went to the one place that like could, you know, didn't really give a shit. Jimmy Iovine being the, the head of the label at that point, I don't think had really much interest in the band or cared much. So we ended up just sort of like the redheaded stepchild of a label that didn't really want us anyway. And so that was certainly a challenge. You know, it was like... That's P- another story that's so commonplace, isn't it, in the history sure. of bands is they get signed and then there's like a reshuffle and then nobody there now cares about them and so they're left high and dry. And Sure. You know, and it's that's the thing that, you know... Um, it is what it is, you know, you can't control that. And, you know, it was disappointing, but at the same time, like, I think that was just a sort of another example in our experience that just taught us, you know, there's so many things you can't control. The one thing you can control is making good albums. And so just and, focus on that. And yeah. Kind of take care of itself kind y- of thing. Yeah, totally. And I think that that's something we, that just was kind of drilled into us the whole time. And now it's like, it's great because now the way we do record deals is we do one deal at a time. We do one record at a time. We don't like if we don't, if we do a record and we don't think the company did a good job, we'll go somewhere else, you know, and we own our masters. So it's kind of like we're masters of our fate at this point. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's a sort of freeing way to operate. I'll bet you are you're almost operating where you are. You're operating as like a punk rock DIY Kind of, but not really, you know, it's certainly not (laughs) DIY. We get a lot of help, you know, I mean, we get a ton of help from, I mean, you know, uh, we've been on RCA for the last, um, few albums, you know, and they've done, they've helped us a lot, you know, they've done a really, a lot of good things for us. And so, you know, we still are relying on people, but I think it's like, you, you accept that help and you're grateful for it. But at the same time, it's like, those things can kind of ebb and flow you know you don't always uh have that so i think just being able to kind of go one record at a time and and find the right situation for each record is important i want to talk to you about a couple of the other producers who came later mm-hmm. uh first of all gil norton sure um his work with feeder some of my favorite production work obviously mm-hmm. pixies foo fighters um a guy like that what does he bring to the equation gil is by far maybe the hardest worker of any producer that we've worked with. Um, he also makes you work harder as a band than maybe any other producer. Um, he was like exactly what we needed for that time. You know, um, hold on a second, I need to blow my nose. No worries. Did you feel, after you've had the blow, did you feel a lot of pressure to follow up <coughs> the success of Bleed American when you were going into Futures as well? Was that 
sure. on your mind. Like, oh my God, we've had this huge hit record. Now we've got to keep this momentum going. Yeah, making features was hard because we needed to kind of learn how to be a band again in a different context. Because all of a sudden with features, it was like, oh shit, like people are looking forward to this. Every record that we've made up until that point, we sort of made with a feeling of sort of relative obscurity. Like, okay, there's a few hundred people out there that might care about this, but um, but they didn't really weigh on us. We kind of just, you know, and I think Futures, we sort of had to battle that notion of all of a sudden, you know, there's other people relying on how well this record does and you start to feel that kind of external pressure. Um, that's just, it's not like anyone doing it to you. It's just that kind of inevitable feeling. Mm -hmm. Or oh, you doing it to yourself. Right? Kind of, yeah. It's a part of it, do, you're doing it to yourself, but part of it is just you're, you're just feeling like this is something people are anticipating, right? How old are you guys at this point? Mm, I would say, let's see, I would say we were probably like in the mid 20s mid so pretty young to yeah, be 25 26 kind of like yeah expectation on you as well yeah maybe 20 like maybe late 20s 20 26 27 28 around there and so um yeah it was a really difficult time because there was not only a lot of uh like it was making a record in a different kind of headspace it was also a lot of us had different sort of life circumstances too and um, it was the hardest record we had to make. And it was kind of like we needed Gil to kind of grab us by the collar and say, we're going forward, you know? And like he kicked our ass and made us like kind of move forward and just, um, you know, but it's weird. I look back on that record. I think it's, if not my favorite record that we've made, I'm, I'm one of the records I'm most proud of even though like it went gold and a lot of people thought, Oh, this is a massive disappointment. But I look back on it like creatively, it's like some of our best stuff, you know? And I think that, um, you know, having Gil there, um, just sort of challenging us, like not stroking our ego. Like mm -hmm. he doesn't care. He's, he'll tell you what's up and like, he'll be like, you know, and he's very, uh, kind of direct and in your face, but always friendly, always positive. Like, you know, he's just he's just kind of a grinder and you know and he that energy kind of helped us get through it so i mean he, he did an awesome job it's funny as well isn't it because if now you put out an album that went gold by those numbers mm -hmm. it would be this huge oh yeah catastrophic, well, not catastrophic was, but massive success yeah <laughs> but then it's like ah oh, gold <laughs> yeah sure <laughs> Should have been platinum. <laughs> yeah exactly it was you know but you it know, was kind it, of always destined to crumble i think if that was the the pressure that was being put on people, right? Is you have to make, like once you've hit that number one record, it's like then the only way is down, right? Unless you just keep getting number ones forever. Yeah, and it, you know, it is what it is. The, so much of that stuff you can't control. What I do know is, um, you know, just when I look back on that album, I, I, I feel like it's some of our best stuff. So it's like, I, you know, um, it just, it was just a, a huge challenge, you know, but that's, that's something that I think as a band, you have to accept and, and learn how to work through. It's an amazing record as well. Yeah, thank an you. Amazing record. Um, Butch Vig as well. Now he wasn't like hands on right in the sense that he was in the studio with you. Right. Was he sort of just there as a kind of a, a confidant and an ear and a, 
advisor exactly. what was his role yeah he was, was kind of chase the light was the record he yeah, was, yeah. It's, it's called the record's called chase this light and it's um he, he was he was an executive producer which basically means like what you said not really there all the time um kind of an outside voice that is keeping up with what you're doing but not there every day um and he was awesome you know we uh we loved working with butch he's like such a he's such a positive sweet kind person and what he brings is like this enthusiasm for what you're doing and i think that's kind of something we hadn't had up until that point because mark is pretty quiet he's not a big rah-rah guy and gill is pretty serious he's also not a big rah-rah guy but Butch is a very much like, oh, man, dude, this is so sick. This is great. You know, like it just sort of gives you the sense of optimism and enthusiasm, which I think is really important in the creative process. Like, you know, especially if you're taking on a bit more of that production responsibility sure. yourselves. Right. Yeah. It's like encouragement. And, you know, and, and uh, the um, the engineer that we worked with on that record, Chris Testa. He basically lived with us in the studio in Phoenix for a long time, and he certainly had definitely like a, a like a kind of production role just in just in the way things sounded. Or he he was awesome, you know. Um, and another guy that we worked with on that album that I felt like had maybe the largest impact on the album in general is a guy named John Fields who had up until that point he was kind of famous for he'd done some he'd done like all of Jonas Brothers production right and he also did some <laughs> some, some stuff for Switchfoot like all of Switchfoot's like bigger hits he did and uh so we worked with him on a few songs and uh he was amazing like uh uh we were struggling to figure out there was a song on the end of that album called dizzy. We were really struggling with that song to figure out how to present it. And he kind of like listened to all the different versions we had. It's like, Oh, I think I see a way forward on this. And he kind of like walked us through it and it, and it ended up being one of the best songs on the album. It went from like, man, is this album going to be, is this song going to be on the album to like, so he was amazing. Um, he worked on Carry You, Dizzy, Big Casino. I can't, maybe a few others. I think he worked on Let It Happen. He like ended up kind of doing additional production on a bunch of songs, and it was, it was great. What's the one song in your whole back catalog that was the hardest to finish and bring to life and make work into a song in the way that you were happy with? Because you do hear about these songs occasionally that are just so tricky, and then when you do get there, the payoff's so big. But is there one? That well, stands if out I were gonna, if I was gonna pick one song, it would be Dizzy. It would be that one. Yeah, because we thought the song was really good. Like there was elements of it that were great, um, but we couldn't really figure out. Like it didn't feel totally right. And then when we ended up finishing it with with um, with John. It was like, ah, there it is. Like, it's like the way it is on the album. When we got it to that point, it was like, yes, that's it. You know, and it's not only, it just went from like, it's funny because it's like the song is the song. There's a melody, there's a chord progression, but then it's like, well, how do you 
arrange it? How does the drum, like changing the drum feel or changing certain things? And um, it just kind of just worked. And we, 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 we struggled so hard with that song. We did like, I think we recorded it three or four different times and different ways and not, nothing ever felt good until we like figured it out with him. The most interesting guy, I think, in your whole career that you've collaborated with is Alan Johannes. Yes. Because he's perhaps the most left of center choice for, for you yes. guys as a band. Um, people will know him as the kind of Queens of the Stone Age guy, very much in that desert rock camp. Um, I presume with him, you were out at his place as well, kind of just yep. with all the gear, with the tapes. Was it yep. kind of a, a very different experience for you guys in terms of making an album? Totally different. It was like we'd never done anything like that before. We recorded in his house um, and just it was perfect for that album. You know, I think for the material of that album. And it was damage. Damage. damage yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it was a very interesting thing. Like, you know he wasn't as like he wasn't as heavy handed with like song stuff or arrangement stuff. He was more just like, um, Hey, this is a good time. Uh, as good a time as any. Can we do five more minutes? Yeah. yeah is that yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I'll bring you out. Uh, Wicked. <laughs> um, the, uh, it was just, it was just, um, I would say, exactly what we needed for that album, you know. Uh, and he kind of created a vibe and a, an attitude towards of like approaching the songs. And you know, at the time we were like, man, this is different, this is weird, but it sort of felt right with the material. And looking back, like I feel like that's sort of one of our albums that's sort of overlooked. And I listened back to it. I was like, man, this is a really good album. Like. You know, and I think maybe because it sounds more of like it almost kind of sounds like a we went into a garage and made a record, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I kind of like it like that, you know, and um, song wise, I think the songs are really strong. And so it just doesn't have that like, you know, I think people are used to hearing sort of like a polished sheen to everything. And uh -huh. that album doesn't have that. And, and but we're totally OK with it. And we think actually it makes the songs feel better. It's interesting because occasionally you'll have like a very successful band that's known for a certain thing work with someone that's perhaps a bit of a less obvious choice. Mm -hmm. And when Josh Holm produced the Arctic Monkeys album, I can't remember the name of the one that he did, but he did a record with them. And they almost came out of that period sounding a bit more Queen to the Stone Age-esque and sure. kind of weird. And people were like, oh, what's this? Like they're uncertain. But I think sometimes the band's already in that place anyway. Mm -hmm. And it's just a case of connecting with the right person that's going to get them that result. Well, usually, you know, like in the case with us and Mark Trombino, we love Dread Like Jehu. Yeah. You know, yeah, and yeah. so like if you're listening to bands and you're, you know, like, so I would just presume that Arctic Monkeys are like, oh, they're kind of, you know into what Queens are doing, you know, yeah. and like, and like that vibe and like the production style. Well then you're kind yeah, you're kind of like chasing the people that are doing interesting things. And then, you know, uh, but, but yeah, I think that's, there's some truth to that. What about the new album survival? Who produced that with you? So, um, we produced it along with, uh, Justin Meldell Johnson, who 
in my opinion, is the best producer we've ever worked with. He did Integrity Blues with us, and he's yeah. doing this album with us. And like Nine Inch Nails, he did right. Yeah, so he's 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 a world class bass player, musician, uh, has played with all different kinds of amazing bands like Nine Inch Nails and Beck, and uh, he was in, he's a writing member of M83, and. Uh, just an amazing dude. Like, I think he has everything. He kind of has, like, all of the components of what, like, he's sort of, like, works as hard as Trombino, um, kind of is able to motivate you and drive you forward like Gil Norton, has enthusiasm like Butch, um, and he's a great communicator. He's very smart and intelligent and can, but also empathetic and can kind of, you know, know he knows how to challenge you without being without stepping on your toes. Whereas like Gil will challenge you and you'll feel a little small afterwards. Yeah. 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 Right? yeah. But Justin will challenge you in a way that like, it feels empowering rather than like getting down on you. So, and he just has a very, what I also appreciate about him is he has a very particular, um, you know, he always says the word persnickety cause he is persnickety about a lot of things. And so if it's good enough, for his ear, then you know you're achieving a level of refinement that matters, you know, that maybe the average listener wouldn't notice, but it's like it creates a kind of refinement on the album that, um, and I don't mean refinement by being slick. It's about like, it's almost like he's, he's sometimes it's refinement in a way of making it sound shittier, you know, mm-hmm. like yeah, he, yeah. he'll hear it and it's like, I want the song to sound more broken. Like it's boring. Like let's 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 do something to like create attention. So it's like, well, let's like you know, let's fuck it up to make it more interesting and to so, serve the song. Yeah, yeah. And he's really good at that. And he's really good at like, um, you know, kind of leading us and helping us take songs that that are maybe you know, and making them giving them a layer of of sophistication in a sense that just makes it more interesting for the listener. And so. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it's, 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 it's kind of like a good feeling to be working with him because you know, you're going to get it, you know, you're going to get a end product that, um, is, has been looked after and has been, uh, really assessed to very particular, you know, by, in a very particular way. And so, um, yeah, it's 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 a really kind of freeing thing to work with him because you feel it's just comfortable, but it's challenging, and you have a confidence that the album is going to be the best it can be. Well, it's a significant year for you, isn't it? Twenty five years as a band. Yeah, album number ten. Mm-hmm. Excited? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's no better way to celebrate the twenty fifth year than to put out an album that I think is one of our best albums. So, um, you know, people have been asking us like, "Well, what are you going to do to celebrate?" 25 years I'm like well we're gonna put out a new album you know it's like we didn't really feel interested in doing big anniversary tour or shit like that like we'd rather you know i think this is going to be an album that people are going to want us to do a 10-year anniversary of in 10 years so let's start it out this year you know i love it well as you say look forward not back yeah exactly yeah zach pleasure yeah. chatting to you my man yeah yeah i uh, hope you get better Thanks, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay. British for cold, some reason, is it? I'm like, I'm, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for your time, mate. I really yeah. enjoyed that. Thank you. Okay, cool. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You uh, you seem to be on more podcasts than most people I know. Really? Uh, yeah, usually when I'm about to do a podcast with someone, I'll type in their name into the and podcast app and see what they've been on, listen to a few, get a vibe for them. And I was, I was spoiled for choice with you. I've been on a couple, yeah. I did the um, the I seven see. words one. That was a really great chat. Oh yeah, yeah, Megan's enjoyed great. that. Uh, there was like an Arizona special one. Yeah, themed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was interesting, and uh, I loved hearing about your enjoyment of podcasts. You were saying in one of them that Mark Maron was a a show that you enjoyed listening to. Yeah, no, I mean uh, Pete Holmes, Mark Maron. Um, you know, I I just uh, what have I been working through lately? What's what's a good one? Oh, the Bundyville. And what's that? That's just all about Ted That's, Bundy. No, it's it's about the... Um, it's basically about the rise of right-wing uh, extremism in the United States. Right. That's a two-season thing. It's, it's pretty gnarly. Well, I mean, if we can go back to September the 11th and that event and that attack, obviously, you know, you guys changed the name of your record in the wake of that. But I was speaking to someone recently about how we probably wouldn't be in the world that we're in now were it not that no of course i mean it, it spurned so many changes in how we you know uh i think the the the, the craziest offshoot of it is that um we realized how you know maybe we didn't realize how susceptible we were to fear as a tactic yeah and even crazier, people learn that we're susceptible to fear as a persuasion device. You know, it's like, I mean, I think that's what we're, that's where we're at now. Is it not so much of, um, I mean, yeah, there's, you know, threat is always going to be there, but it, it always was, you know, like there, there's always like, 
There's always somebody crazy enough to to um, or paranoid enough to to think that their um, only choice to make a difference is to you know instill terror. But now I feel like people have realized it's it's like I said it's a persuasive tool and that's toxic. I think the stats is something as well that you know you look at and you realize that all these mass shootings that happen they're never from Mexicans or Muslims or you know minorities they're always from yeah it's mostly from deranged. From, from white males that identify as Christian mm-hmm. you're a parent right yes does it does that have a big impact on the way that you oh of course perceive all this stuff unfolding because obviously you know you have people that you're now responsible for and you know of course yeah careful wholeheartedly and then you're seeing all of this crazy stuff going on in the world around you and yeah no yeah it's like i think um the oh what a world lament has been something that i think every generation has said to themselves but yeah it's it's really scary now are your parents still around yes what do they make of it? Or do you ever talk to them about um, these things that we're seeing in comparison to, say, their lifetime? And man, yeah, not 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 really so much. I mean, I can tell they're ups- they're just you know unsettled. Of course, you have to be crazy not to be unsettled yeah. somewhat. But we don't spend a whole lot of time, uh, you know, getting into it. You know, they're definitely they're definitely more on the on the um, fiscal conservative side of of the spectrum. Where's home for you? Are you still in Arizona? Yeah, I live yeah. in Phoenix. What's the kind of the political cultural vibe around there? Is uh, it fairly liberal? Is it fairly conservative? Is it nice? Is it it's safe? You know, like the the, the on the um, liberal progressive side, they're you know the tendencies to label that color blue and on the conservative side that's people you know associate red Arizona's kind of purplish it's sort of like mauve mm-hmm. it's 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 kind of it's mostly red but there's there's definitely some blue in there um it's not entirely rigid um but it does lean conservative you know as a majority so you like it is it home is it where the heart is yeah I mean, we we've we grew up there, you know. All of our families there. We have a lot of friends there. Um, anybody that we know in the music scene, it, it's it's really easy to if we have you know, you have some crazy idea for uh, a music project you want to do. Like I know everybody to call to make that happen. It's like, what that's what else do you want? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what when you were growing up there, who were the sort of local bands that? showed you guys the way early on was there any that were doing it at a level that you thought we'd like to get even if we just get there that would be great i never i never felt like if we just got there it would be great i've kind of never had that feeling but i mean the in the sense that it's always like just keep going for more well just music as an as a means to an end was never the way i looked at it it was, it was always just like, it's it. You, are you doing it? Then, you know, have fun doing it. So the process. Yeah, the process was, was, was the re- reward itself almost. Um, 
but when we were growing up, it it was and um, starting to play in bands and starting to, to you know go see other bands play. That was pre-internet as we know it. Uh huh. And you found out about things from friends, from flyers at record shops, from people that worked at record shops, like record store worker, worker clerk. People were like the, the gatekeepers, right? The gatekeepers <laughs> yeah. for the world that was beyond. And you know, we we got of course, you know of course we made friends with everybody. Um, Arizona, the Phoenix area was pretty spread out. Like it's a large metropolis metropolitan area, but it's it's um, it's not a whole lot of up. There's a whole lot of out. Like there's unlimited space to go out, so that's the cheaper way to build construction. And so um, something could be happening on one side of town, and you would never know about it happening on the what's what the scene is like on the other side of town. Um, when we were growing up, probably the biggest Arizona band was the Gin Blossoms. Like there was a whole scene of of. Mm, uh, to call it bar rock would be not exactly accurate. Um, maybe like uh, um, like replacements influenced kind of like yeah just, yeah you know like rock but, but but scuzzy rock and roll scuzzy rock and roll but um you know a real a respect for songwriting not not punk at all yeah yeah but but you know like I mean. With the attitude of like a Husker Du type kind of sound, or yeah, a little bit. I mean, if you've heard Jim Blossoms, that like you know, there's a respect for songwriting there, but I mean, it's it's a it 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 comes from a, a bar sort of scene. Yeah. Um, so there was that whole thing going on, but when we were kids, there um, was a law that got put into effect where if you were an establishment that served alcohol, you could only you had to be above a certain capacity or you had to sell a certain amount of food from your, your sales to be, um, to have under 21 under drinking age people allowed in your, 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 your space. Otherwise you had to have a partitioned off area separate from any bar that was like monitored and no bar wanted to eat up their their capacity with of course yeah like kids that weren't going to buy booze so a lot of places became just straight up 21 and over and a lot of the places that were doing like punk shows like now had to find their own place so so where did they start taking place well in a weird way that energized things because it was like, okay, well, we have to do this ourselves. We have to make up our own shit now. Yeah. What, what are we going to do? So that spawned a whole host of like different places that were like super sketchy and only open for about eight or nine months at a time before they got shut down. Like, you know, all ages art space type venues, mm-hmm. um, you know, vocal PA only. Um, Did wherever. you get out and do any like desert generator style? There's, there, we've, we've played some desert generator stuff. Yeah. 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 That happens. Uh, but so, yeah, I mean, we, we, you know, that if you want, if you were under 21 and you wanted to play, like you, you figure that out. Um, 
and we just sort of fell in line with um, like-minded people who were doing that. Would you say that the signing of your band was a stroke of luck, right time, right place? How did that series of events unfold? Sorry to interrupt. Yes, mate. Okay. He's like, I love to assume. Oh. Oh. <laughs> I thought you'd want to get your order. You want to look at the menu and let me know what you want. And then I can get them to order for you. Ruby chicken? Yeah. And oh, you already know, man. You got it. Yeah. And uh, Marchi Tika. Ruby chicken, Marchi Tika, yeah? Yeah. And you want me to get them to have it ready for you at the table, or do you want it boxed up for takeout? How do you want to do it? I reckon there's still going to be another, like, 20, 30 minutes here. Thinking this, if, if they have a seat for me, I'll just roll in and eat it there. Yeah. I mean, they probably won't get seated and eat food for yeah, 20, yeah. 30. That's cool, man. Right? Okay. So we're doing ruby chicken and... Machi tikka. Machi tikka. All right. Sorry. On that note. So don't have to hold All right, them. there we go. That was some hard hitting, hard hitting uh, radio right there. <laughs> Ruby Tuesday. So um, yeah, Capital Records. How do they hear about you guys? Um. So our 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 scene was comprised of people that in, in Arizona were comprised of people that were, um, you know, we had to do it all on our own because there was. A constantly shifting, uh, you know, hub for it all, and uh, you know, no real promoters that were would be taking a chance on acts that were like our level, which was zero. So, um, you know, some friends of mine decided they would start a record label, and that was like. You know, they don't know what they're doing. They just had, a, <laughs> they just had a, oh, we want to be a record label. Okay, great, we're a record label. And to put out local bands, or yeah, to put yeah, out yeah. local bands, pretty much. And um, ours was like one of the first thing that they decided to do. Uh, and you know, some other friends of mine said we want to be a promoters. It's like, okay, cool, we're promoters now. And <laughs> did any of their careers take off in those ways? No, no. No, we were horrible. <laughs> um, you know, but we did it, we did give people like a, a place to play and sometimes gas money. Um, but so like we listed our. I mean, another way that people found out about stuff was like zine. Yeah, yeah, of reviews. course. Zines were like zines were like the podcasts for the pre-internet yeah. era. It's like you found out about music through like uh, Maximum Rock and Roll. I genuinely heart, heart think that pre-internet was the best last era to be like young. It's I don't we, know that's just being nostalgic we, for my youth, got, but it we, was a good time to be young. Yeah, no, really. I mean, we got to experience a cra- like a crazy point in history that'll never appear again, like the crossover mm-hmm. of pre-internet and then internet. Like there was no smartphones. No. If you 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 had to it was really 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 expensive to have like a cellular phone 
Like that was a rich person thing. Like you yeah, didn't, yeah. no one had that, you know? And then pay as you go comes along and you maybe got like enough for a couple of texts a day to last the whole month. But what was interesting is people wouldn't just be on their phone because all you could do was call and text. So you wouldn't just sit there looking at your phone like now everybody does. Yeah. You were forced to, um, <laughs> like when we would tour, we'd get to the edge of town. We'd use our road atlas and find directions to the town. Mm-hmm. We get to the edge of town, call, find a payphone, call the promoter, and try to get directions to the venue we were playing that night. I mean, can you imagine trying to like trying to navigate now without any like GPS help? Well, people like, panic I do, when I do their batteries just, die, don't they? They're like, "What I am I going to do?" I do it just automatically because I want to find the best traffic route. You know, like yeah. And you that there and you had to memorize all the phone numbers for your friends. Uh-huh, like you have this course. wealth of knowledge in your head that now like do you how many phone numbers do you have memorized? Now? Well my own and that's it. Right. So it's like yeah. And imagine again if you lost your phone and you're stranded somewhere, you can't call probably anyone because you don't know any of those numbers off by heart. Exactly. It's it's really <laughs> strange that that you know yeah. How do you how old are your kids, if you don't mind me asking? Uh they're teenagers. Right. So they're very much in the I wanna be on my phone. Kind they don't know life without it. Age. Yeah. They don't know, like, it's, they'll never know life without it. It's crazy. Oh, yeah, but so, um, uh, you know, Heart Attack, Maximum Rock and Roll were two zines that were, like, kind of big. Uh, and there was a dozen or so, like, smaller ones that, that you, you would look at and find out what's going on. Um, so we listed ourselves... As a, and Maximum Rock and Roll will put out a, a yearly periodical called Book Your Own Fucking Life. Yeah, 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 of course. That, that was like the legendary Bible of yeah. tour routing, wasn't it? Yeah, so, I mean, we utilized that thing on, on tours and, and called people that, you know, you could you could call up promoters in different towns, and if none of them called you back, you could just start calling bands in other towns and see if, like, they, you could get hooked up with, you know, a show or something. And in turn, when they came to your town, you'd help them out with something. That was... That was how anybody toured. It was like, you know. Are there any bands that you met through that yeah. book, book that are still doing it now? I don't know if they're still doing it now. Um, oh, so there's a band called Christy Front Drive from Colorado that, that was heading to Los Angeles. And they called us for help with a Phoenix show. And we said, yeah, cool, man. They, they sent us some LPs of what of their their music. And it was awesome. I loved it. And so they came and played in town, and it was fucking horrible. There was no <laughs> there was nobody there, but you know there's there's usually nobody at any of those shows. Yeah, of when course. you're when you're that level. Yeah, yeah. Um, and my friend who was involved in our production company was also involved in our. Um, the, the record label that was putting out our, our things, my other friends. And he asked them like if they'd be willing to do a split record with us. Because that was another thing that you did. Like you, you, you would do a split record with the band and then you could help each other out with, with like each other's locale when you were touring. And without even hearing us, they said, yeah, cool, man. We'll totally do a split record with you guys. Because it's a big deal if someone's going to put down the money to record, like pay for a record of yours. Um, so without even hearing us, they said, yeah. 
and continued on to Los Angeles where they were, they were playing with Sensefield. And there was a scout from Capitol Records there, I think, just to, to see the show. And he was really into, like, what Christy Front Drive was doing. So he asked them, like, what... What, what, what record, you got what going are, on? Yeah, what do, what do you got coming? What, do you have any other records? And say, well, we're doing this split record with this band from Arizona called Jimmy Eat World. And so he found, he hunted down our first, like, seven inch or something from a mail order place in Tucson and, you know, liked it, showed it to the A&R person he was working for. And then we had, you know, we're doing like this local gig and then we have an A&R person from Capitol show up. And you know he's in the crowd? No. No. So that's 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 how Capital came into the picture. And then they just sign you. Uh, yeah, they were like, well, you know, we like what you're doing. And we did like had that kind of, I guess, development period where we were just you know rehearsing and kept writing songs and showing them what we came up with. And then they said, yeah, cool, we'll 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 put out your record. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, not even trying. Not even really looking for mobility on the music level, just sort of doing our thing. Has that set the tone for the whole Jimmy Eat World story, do you think? That you're kind of just doing it for the enjoyment of doing it and whatever happened has happened? I think so. I think spending time where nobody cares was really helpful because in it, you know our perception our self identity was formed in that time where really the only thing you can control is just being proud of what you're doing yeah that's it so if opportunity comes that's great but you don't have any you know Opportunity is really just the the intersection of of uh, um, well, I mean, it's it's the opportunity to work really hard. It's not it's not like a guarantee that anything's going to come from that. So, yeah, I mean, I guess that's sort of how we approach everything now and everything since then. Like this could all go away in a second. Did a so lot change? <laughs> did a lot change like right away after Bleed American? And did you adjust to that period with ease, or was it kind of a bit of a trip being thrown into this? Mm. I mean, from our perspective, starting at about like uh, the clarity period, things things were, were were picking up. Yeah, you know, we would come back to a city, and there'd be maybe more people or we'd have a better support slot on a tour. And it, it just seemed like things were kind of like, you know, notching up and notching up and notching up. And when Bleed American happened, it felt like a, a, a bigger version of that. You know, like, we did, it didn't really... So it wasn't like Beatlemania style? No, I mean, it didn't sink in really what had happened until maybe after futures <laughs> right 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 well when you yeah. stopped and slowed down for yeah a second. i was like okay whoa all right i guess i guess we can really just do this <laughs> you know like 
there's there's a hesitance to let in um I feel like there's a hesitance to let in and truly celebrate the small victories because it, that that means like your 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 operating procedures have to change somewhat you know it's like things are working okay great let's just do our thing this way yeah it's really only recently that I've made an effort to start actually celebrating the small victories you know, not not because not because I'm afraid of it changing things anymore, but because I felt like there's real reward in in the gratitude from it, and that reward is almost as empowering and and um, uh, pure jet fuel for continuing, even more so than like you know, okay, this is working, this is working, this is working. Don't mess it up. Don't just we're gonna do this, okay? <laughs> it's like. That's really, uh, you know, that's that's not it, it. It's just not sustainable. What inspires you? What keeps you inspired as a songwriter, as a creative, as an artist? Everything. <laughs> Everything. I think you just have to. It's 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 really it's really cool. Wherever you look, you're gonna find yourself. It doesn't really matter where you look. It's it's just that you have to look. Um, and I think just the reward of discovery is inspiring. You know, like the if you're brave enough to look and be honest about what you're finding. Uh, it's really satisfying to to just see how 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 real you can build that vision, <laughs> and like the the success of the the success of that achievement. I mean, whether or not anyone cares is is a you know is is is, is secondary. But like just that success alone of of like okay, here's my idea. I want to see how close I can get to this, like. And then to nail it is like, that's, you know, that's inspiring. How long have you been sober now? If you don't mind me asking, I heard you talking about your kind of recovery yeah. and sobriety on another podcast. Uh, six years and change. And has that been a huge part of your creative journey as well? The kind of shift in your own mindset that getting sober teaches you? Oh, definitely. You. Definitely. You know, because I feel like the... I'm definitely I'm definitely um not afraid to like be honest about what I report when I do the looking because I've I've discovered that like you don't die <laughs> you don't die from getting honest about with with what's really happening and in fact it's in, it's it's really you know it is empowering what was the first record you started work on when you were early on in the sobriety journey? Uh, let's see. And was it a kind of a daunting process or was it an exciting one or just uh, brand new? You know, new? a lot of people, a lot of people, I was talking to Pete Holmes about this, like a lot of people think like, well, uh, 
you know, well, I, I, I do my best writing when I have a couple beers and maybe some weed or whatever, you know, that might be. You do it's or like, you don't. You, oh, people might, people, I mean, people might, a lot of people think that like, I don't, I, I can't work sober. It's like, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the things that you think you just are, aren't, aren't really only as true as you let them be. You know, I'd, I'd argue you're more yourself with, you know, a, a, with a clear head. <laughs> like there's, there's so much more to discover that you're not maybe willing to look at. You know, it, it, it's like, but I understand the, I understand the fear of looking. You know, I mean, um, a lot of the, I mean, most of our new album, Surviving, is, is, is about that, like, sort of decision point and, like, the, you know, that I'm, that I'm kind of fascinated with now. It's like, you, you can, I just do this. This is me. You know, like, whatever that is. Um, even, and you might not really like you, but to deviate from that, it requires you to go into something you don't know. Like, if I'm not... You know, like if I don't if I don't drink when I write, like what'll happen? Like I don't know. Like if I don't, you know, <laughs> but it's but it, but it's kind of crazy. It's like um, there's so much fear of 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 just that. Like you you don't like where you are, but to do something different, like anything different would be better than this. But I'm afraid to do anything different because I don't know who I'm going to be over there. Like it's, it's a crazy, it doesn't make any sense, but I don't think it's a natural, I don't think anyone's built with it naturally to, to confront that and, and take that step on the other side. Was touring hard early on? When uh, you were, in sobriety? Yeah. No. No? No. I mean, I think for me, once I made the decision that like that, that my threshold between control and not con out of control was zero to one <laughs> and really let that in. It was like, okay, well that's just not on the table. Um, I mean, yeah, drinking's all around you. It's socially acceptable. And you know, most of the places that we spend our days are alcohol serving establishments. Um, but, you know, I guess one thing that that sort of helped me out was like looking at, um, you know, I guess one of the tools I employed early on was like, okay, well, um, the the sort of like ment psychic mental shift of what am I going to do? Like not... Um, you know, a lot of people, and a lot of people have this the, the the this this misconception about recovery as as like it's it's like don't drink, don't drink, don't drink, don't drink, don't drink. But really, it's like all about what you're gonna do. If you're so busy focused on what you're doing, you're not like what you're trying to avoid just isn't even on your radar. If you're you know like I have all this to do, so I'm it's like a this. full I'm rewiring. Focused. Yeah, it's like, so, I mean, early on, one of the tools I employed was like, okay, I'm going to be as present with every single person I come into contact with. That's what I'm going to do. Like, 
someone's checking me out at the at the grocery store, like, you know, hey, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing okay, man. Like, what's up? Like, how's it slow today? You know, like, really focus with every single person that I came in contact with. Um, and I, I put that in place of worrying about anything I was avoiding. And it was great. <laughs> you know, like, I, I just, I, you know, I discovered, like, I'm really not all that awkward as I felt I was around people. Like, you know, the, the things I felt like I needed, I realized that I don't. And the, you know, like I was saying about the reward system of, of, um, of creation, uh, that, that just kind of carried over into everything, you know, like the, when you take that step into the unknown and you don't die and you, you in fact discover that maybe you're capable of more than what you had previously expected of yourself, like that's, that's. That's a huge, that's, um, I mean, that's where your sense of self-worth kind of comes from and it's rewarding and you want more of that. So you're willing to take on something else that's a little bit more scary that maybe isn't you. And then after some time, you're like, wait a minute, did I just say that? Am, am I, am I really doing this right now? I'm this guy now? Like, who's this? But in a good way. Like in a good, and it feels yeah. good. Like, like, fuck, I can hey, this is me, you know, like, you don't, you don't want to go back, <laughs> you, know, you know, it's like, is that very much where you're at as you much prefer it over here? This is where, yeah, better. this is, yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Well, you look incredibly well, like you can, I think, see in someone's eyes and skin and oh, gen thanks. general outward demeanor that, you know, whatever path yeah. they're on is treating them good. Well, sure. I mean, and it, it, it Uh, you know, also like, like letting the small victories in and really celebrating them and having a, a sense of gratitude for things that are come your way. Uh, it's like, you know, we're this band from Phoenix that, you know, started out playing in, art, you know, really sketchy, like all ages art spaces. And now I'm in London. 25 years <laughs> and people, later. And people want to talk to me. It's like, what? You know, it's 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 all still mind blowing. Well, ten albums is no joke, is it? You know, you've always been a very consistent band with the kind of three year rule. Yes, there's absolutely no <laughs> laughing at ten albums. <laughs> yeah, no, it's crazy. It's 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 um yeah, it's it's something that we never expected. I mean, we always knew we'd be playing music in some capacity forever whether that looked like you know teaching lessons or <laughs> or like you know just jamming or uh whatever it would be a part of our lives but we never expected it would be our lives what do you think you'd be doing without music um you know i was on the road for a career in journalism yeah is that what you studied at yeah college or university yeah 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 I went for about a, um, three semesters, and then we dropped out to go sleep on floors. And then <laughs> and the travel floors the country became and couches, and then beds. And yeah, we graduate to couches, <laughs> <laughs> and then and then 
and then three to a bed, and then uh, you know two to a room, and then now now we're here. You got your own. Yeah, I got my own room. It's (laughs) crazy. I wanted to ask you about. There's a song on the new album. Is it called All the Way? Yeah, yeah. It's not called All the Way. Um, Tell me about the the lyrics of that, and then just the the kind of the the sax and the sound because it's it's a great track. It's like halfway point in the album, and it's this kind of just beautiful breath of fresh air i mean i love the whole record but as soon as i got to that song i was oh, like great. this is my jam oh thanks man that's really cool yeah um i think you're just generally you know approaching i think you're always doing something that is a um we work really hard on our albums and you know a theme or a um you know, we just occupy a headspace while we're working, and I think it's 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 a pretty natural response to, you know, we feel like we've accomplished something, and when we start doing something new, we're really aware of what we just did because like we feel like okay, we we did that, so what are we going to do now? And it's usually it's usually a step away from what we just did. So most of the material on surviving, I feel, is is pretty. It's a lot like Bleed American in a way, where it's it's, it's pretty concise, it's pretty pretty guitar driven. Yeah. Um, we wanted to make stuff that was fun to play, you know, and that and that kind of speaks to the core of what we do, which is you know guitar or guitar a melodic guitar rock band, <laughs> and so um, you know all the way kind of hints at a lot of uh, of our roots of of. Uh, early 80s metal in some regard you know yeah yeah uh but in but in like a you know just just i don't know we wanted something that just felt good and um you know i guess the all the way is sort of an interesting song because uh there's parts of it that are cannibalized from from really older material like we have our own studio now and um after Bleed American, we took some of our money and, and just funneled it into our own uh, studio, like a place where we could record. Smart move. Eventually, yeah. Yeah, and we built it up and built it up and built it up over the years. That I mean, we made all of Chase's Light there. Pretty much all of our records, we've done at least like some things there. And for Surviving, we did um, the drums in, an, in a different studio um, and everything else at our place. Uh, and uh, you know, all the way. I don't know why I brought that up, but uh, all the way was like uh, what can I say about all the way? The um, yeah. So all uh, I remember, we never throw anything out, you know, because with, with with computer recording, it's all just there, uh, and there's. The chorus has elements of something that we were working on even before Futures that for some reason it just never quite fit with whatever else we were doing. Like, I don't know what it is about it. But uh, so with All The Way, we had like the the, the verse riff and mm-hmm. like that section. And it's 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 kind of more of tighter and, and, and um, like a tighter riff that has a lot of negative space. So we felt like we wanted something. We knew what we wanted to get. We wanted like the chorus to be more like open up, and 
I just remembered like, oh wait, we got this other part that we never used for anything. Like this would actually fit if we just dropped it right in and it felt like it always wanted to be there. The Frankenstein monster kind of yeah. be- beauty of songwriting. Yeah, I mean, we, the, man, like you have to work on something to completion. No matter w- how crazy it is, no matter how not, no matter how outside of your own self identity it feels, like you gotta flesh it out and make it the best thing for itself as you can. Whether or not anybody hears it after that is your choice, but you never know where, when when something you might not use or fully flesh out. Uh, you know, if you, if you can't just do that, but you never know when you can cannibalize an older idea for something that you're, you know, that just fits the puzzle of, of now. So that's a song that came into being like that. And the outro is like, <laughs> we, we were listening to a lot of like 80s music on the road. And if you were a session sax player in the 80s, you were set. Yeah, because everything, absolutely. every like it's it's <laughs> it's it's uncanny. Like you, like wow, everybody has a sax solo, and it's like the thing. And another thing that we, another device we noticed happening a lot is like, you know, at the end of a song, like some ripping new solo comes in, and then it fades out, and you're like, oh wait, come back, this is cool. It was just started. So our goal, our idea was, we're gonna have like. You know, James from Fits in the Tantrums, like, just shred. Like, whatever you want to do, dude, just shred. Because he's a shredder. And what he came up with, it was so cool. We're like, no, let's just keep all the, let's just keep all of it <laughs> that we were going to fade out. Because it's too cool. So it turned into this big jam. Good chatting to you, mate. I think it's probably Dishoom time. Oh, yes. For you now. It's always Dishoom time. <laughs> uh, congratulations on 25 years, 10 yeah, albums. Thank you very much. And um, I'm sure there'll be many more records and years to come. Hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Thanks, mate. Found in unlikely places A little prison Shun's all you need To end up empty Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince Quince has all the jet-setting essentials You'll want for your next getaway Like European linen Premium luggage options Buttery soft Italian leather bags And so much more And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less Than similar brands Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.